And Seth, hey Rob, welcome back to where? The old undisclosed location. I have fond memories here, oddly enough. Oddly enough. They are odd. They are odd. Hey listeners, thanks so much for listening. Absolutely. We do. We have to get our thank yous out of the way. Josh Thane, Robert Kwan for all your recording assistance, Harris, Sully Sullivan for your Bostonness. And, and of for your cool. social media help, go ahead. And of course, Pillay and Clark. Pillay, Clark, wonderful accountants, financiers. We've talked about them a bunch lately. I think you're getting the message if you're a regular listener. This is this is high end accounting and financial in- advice and input and sort of thing. Pillay. And now, yes. a quick yes message from Osiris. Hey, this is Brendan from Umphreys McGee. This podcast is part of the Osiris Podcast family. What's up? This is Ryan Stasek from Umphreys McGee. Osiris is a growing community of music and culture podcasts, connecting music fans with conversation, commentary, and of course, lots of music. Osiris. Who were those guys? I don't know. Any rate, though. We do it better, don't we? We do that better. <laughs> what do we do better? I don't know. Neither <laughs> do I. And if you know, email us at InsideOutWTNS. If there's anything we do well, tell us. But also remember, we like criticism. InsideOutWTNS. Rob, I, I'm getting a lot of criticism lately. <laughs> well, we'll save that for the end of the show. Also, at the end of the show, we want to talk about Clarence Fountain. Um, we, we've mentioned Blind Boys of Alabama many times. He's the last remaining member. He passed away just on the day that we're cutting these segments. Very sad loss. He was managed. The band's managed out of Decatur, Georgia here. Charles Derby. Great man. And especially in the Jason Crosby um, episode, we talked about Prince sitting in with them, and uh, we might have to retween that, that tweener. Retween the tweener? Well, and the, it would was, that be a B-tween? No, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. A B-tween. Yes, yes. The first time was okay. I know. Don't, don't. Uh, hey, Rob, this is my last time probably looking at you. No, maybe. No, we're going to Bonnaroo on Sunday. I forgot about that. Right. We're doing a quick. We're meeting up some some of your some of your corporate friends. That's right. Just a big corporate. We can't, we can't really say. Uh, can't say just yet. I can say it's, there's nothing wrong with saying it. I mean, it's no big deal. No, keep it quiet. All right. Shh. Uh, but anyway, so after that, uh, I fly immediately out. It looks like Rob, I'm doing the festival circuit that I wasn't going to be doing. So now I'm doing it. Maybe I'll do Electric Forest with you, brother. Come. I'm going to do Firefly and then Electric Forest back to back. So I'm gone for all the rest of the month. Yeah, we need to cut at least one more set of segments, maybe two, before you leave. Sometime this weekend, somehow. Well, we could do it in the car. Yeah, Bonnaroo. Or you know, I was thinking we could maybe do it in the car on the drive. We're interviewing Eddie Eddie uh, from. Um, New Master Sounds this week, and uh, very much looking forward to that. I've been listening to the last two records. Awesome stuff. I love them. Oh. 
But maybe we could cut segments there while we're together then at Terminal West, and uh, maybe maybe call O'Teal then. Well, no, the O'Teal thing is supposed to be tomorrow. They still don't have a time for us, so I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Let's try to see if you can squeeze they, in they in Thursday. Me, they they gave me two dates to we'll work come with. Come back to them. Say, hey, look, we're going to be set up Thursday. Maybe you do it then. Just try. You never know. Just ask. Oh, Rob. Hey, I'm not. It's not in person. I'm not excited about it either. But I'll take it because you said I said get me O'Teal. You got me O'Teal, sort of. But it might be worth waiting and sitting down with them. I don't know. Tough call. Tough call. Well, see, folks, Rob, uh, I, I used to disagree with Rob on the whole, like, we could just call people, and he's like, no, it's a sit-down. But there is something that happens when we do sit down. I get it. And I hope you listeners get it, too. Uh, on the flip side, I am listening to our listeners, and they want a shorter episode. So, therefore, enough of us talking. Let's just jump into this interview. But why don't you go ahead and open up and lead into this interview? Oh, Michael League, I, I have such respect for this guy. Um, he is not just a great talent. He's a big-hearted guy who's... Who's looking out to lift other musicians? Uh, he's had great fortune, came out of a small college in Texas, and now is heading up not just Snarky Puppy, but he's a big part of this whole ground up label. They do their own festival, as you'll hear in this interview. It's not really a goal of them of theirs to sell tickets. It's more to just provide a great experience for the amount of people that do come. And we we talk about their whole decision to stay in, to have it in Florida, which is great. That a great way to warm yourself up to Seth to, to decide to put your festival in Florida. Because Seth loves to talk about Florida. That's not true. I just like being able to get work down there because I get to see my folks. Oh, yeah. Remember I booked you in Tallahassee in 1997? <laughs> oh, you do listen. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But see, the thing about Michael League, though, he's a, he's a young man and a pioneer. He really is a pioneer. He's finding musicians from all over the world to work with, or they're finding him. We talk about one of the Cuban musicians. Oh, that's from, great stories there. You're right. Yeah. The Buena Vista Social Club and how he kind of assimilates himself and... They'll listen to the interview. Yeah, it's it's just this is. I I was particularly proud of this one, Seth. I really liked how this one went. Thank you to Jamie at Ground Up for helping us out. She is definitely a pop, not a pip, as I say in this interview. This is the first time I mentioned that. You you remember the difference between a pop and a pip, right, Seth? Uh, one squeaks, pip squeak. No. Why don't you tell us? Oh, the publicist thing. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. yeah, yeah. Podcast aware publicist. Yes, yes, pop. yes. Podcast ignorant publicist. Pip. Pips are going to fade at some point. I don't know how fast, but at some point, you want to be podcast aware. Or even just as a citizen. Whatever yeah. the case. We did this in a hotel high above Atlanta. He's such a... He's, he's such we, a we almost lost the interview because I left my computer in the lobby yeah. on the way out. Can you believe that? What an idiot I am. I left my computer somewhere in the Stickley Oh, no, you, you left your computer at Stickley in the, on the... On the street, basically. On the street. In front of the and then you shop. also left that same computer one day at like the city winery for like three days or something. Yeah, that was when I took notes for one of the Kevin Kinney shows. Oh, and then, my God. Yeah. Uh. We're professionals. Anyway, the point <laughs> being, when we walked into his room, he was, all, he was working on tracks for the next album. He was like, he's constantly working on stuff. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just one interesting thing about them, they're constantly revolving the lineup. I kind of stumble when I ask the question, but... It's just amazing to me that the, that they they have a, a group of twenty twenty five musicians that they you know create with and compose in the studio and all that, but they only go on the road with eight to tw- eleven or twelve, and they they rotate every tour, but they don't really rehearse. They all just know the material so well that there's like this innate way they have of not telepathically but non verbally communicating and getting their way through the songs. Uh, even though they're not constantly on tour with each other. That is so impressive to me. That's so indicative of the level of musicians that are in this whole snarky puppy world. And the level of fandom that they've got, the fan base has grown, but it's not just the fans. They are, they're, they're, they're one of these rare bands that aren't, they're like, 
they are musicians. Music, brother, what was you saying? Like musicians are their fan base as well as a fan base. Fan base. You know what I mean? Oh, the fa- the fa- well, two things that struck me: their fan base is is very open minded and looking to find other music. But it also, there was a Grateful Dead like thing where they were like, they were selling identif- nitrous in the front. They were no, that's no. only in Philly. Oh, right. <laughs> or always in Philly, not only. Um, what was I saying? Oh, they're taking the they're, they're like trying to identify the songs and keeping set lists and pointing uh, out to me what was rare and what was. It was really an interesting experience because I saddled up right to that that little bar at the center of the room so I could take notes. So I I went early and just hung there the whole day because there's no VIP or no special section. And I guess I was with Quan one night and who was I with the other night? I was with the photographer the other night. He was with his yeah, girlfriend. No. So I didn't really have. Quan was an anchor with me for a while, but I kind of just had to hang right there. One of those clear your bladder and then just hold it for the rest of the show kind of thing. Wow. You actually stayed in one spot the whole show? Yeah, but it was worth it. It was both nights. It was two nights. All right. Well, let's... Uh... And Alina, who's on their label, opened one of them. And, and Fork, who has Kevin Scott. And, and as we learned at the show, Kevin Scott landed Snarky Puppy, their first Atlanta gig. He had a weekly gig at Isle 5, uh, what was then called the Five Spot. And he that, that very Colonel-like gesture to open the doors to Snarky Puppy, open the doors of Atlanta. And now Snarky Puppy is huge. And, and now Kevin is a permanent member of Fork, who is also on this Ground Up label. And by the way, my review of this show, one of these shows was in Relics. Um... I forget which issue. Sorry. Just look for it. You'll find it. Why don't you, can you post it on our website? Uh, I'd have to get permission from Relics, and that would involve people responding to emails, so we'll see. All right. Well, without further ado, now, hey, everybody, enjoy Michael League. Downtown Atlanta, sitting here with the founding, the founder of Snarky Puppy, Mr. Michael League. How you doing? Good. Great to have you. Seth, say hey. Hello. <laughs> I had the opportunity to turn him on to Town National. He's watching a Town National video. <laughs> uh, we'll get to the West African influence on you first, but I, I want to talk about you personally first because um, it's, it's one of the many great things I've learned about you is that you don't just want to be a successful musician, that you want to inspire other musicians and the music world in general. 
And that's why you started the Ground Up label and you do the Ground Up Festival. And let's talk about this year's version of the Ground Up Festival. What It, it was just last week. Yep. What are some of your immediate lasting memories of it musically? I know, I know it's a lot of work for you and all that, but musically. Uh, I mean, I think the effect that that festival has on people is like, because every artist is great, you know? I mean, we don't, we, we, we don't invite artists based on ticket sales at all, you know? I mean, that's, there's enough festivals in the world that, that have big name headliners and, you know, want to grow audiences and our, our goals are kind of the opposite, <laughs> actually. Um, like the goal for the festival is to not grow it at all, just to improve it every year, to keep it very intimate and to make sure that every single artist that plays has is not just a great band or a great artist, but that they bring something unique conceptually to the world musically. Uh, so you leave the festival or you when you're there, you kind of have this feeling of just kind of like, a, you know, being overwhelmed like a cup overflowing that's kind of the 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 idea i mean the individual performances are amazing but when you put them all together you know we try to create like a very balanced diet so that you're hearing music from all over the world and different genres different styles different moods and uh and that hopefully you leave wanting to go further down the hole with each of those artists and what's uh what's the um, <clears throat> what's the idea behind putting in a place like miami which Quite frankly, as someone who grew up in Fort Lauderdale, is a, uh, to have such musicianship. I mean, if you know anything about the Miami and Fort Lauderdale scene, Dr. Lonnie Smith used to play at a club called O'Hara's Pub, which yeah. is a tiny little hole in the wall. So, you know, you're talking about bringing musicians of that caliber and putting them in essentially the hole in the wall of the United States. <laughs> I ain't expecting a draw in an area of the country that's a very unpredictable draw-wise. It took some convincing to make the decision to do it there our festival director Paul Lairs from Miami and when we started talking about doing the festival he said we have to do it in Miami and I was telling him there's no way in hell we're doing it in Miami <laughs> we've never even played in Miami there's so little interest in having Snarky Puppy really? In, you've we, never even played there? the only time Snarky Puppy's ever played in Miami is at the Ground Up Music Festival we played at Boca uh, at the Funky Biscuit yeah. in Boca Raton and you know the, it's and a and tiny and club the water is right by there as well but <laughs> Right, and we did the jam cruise, of course, you know, disembarking from Miami. We've ne actually never played in Miami except for our, our own festival. So, you know, <clears throat> he had to convince me. You know, I mean, the major selling points were there was a great festival ground, like a great environment to do the festival in, like physically, like the festival grounds. Number two, the weather, to throw a festival in February and have it be 73 degrees and sunny on a beach is appealing to festival goers no matter what kind of music listener you are or no matter where they're coming from in the or world or no matter where they're coming from the world and actually you know our first year we had 34 countries represented in, in our audience so most of those were cold countries you know people who were excited to be in the sun so why Miami and say not uh, the Dominican Republic or Mexico or a place like that because Paul is from there and he has connections uh -huh. so he uh not just, you know, I mean, obviously funding connections. He has a great relationship with the city. So, you know, our festival's fully independent. You know, we don't have Live Nation or AEG running our production. We don't have Bud Light, you know, sponsoring us. It's like 100% us. We, we hire everyone from the drivers to the stage managers to the, to the food vendor, you know. Uh, so if you're going to do it that way, 
um, without a sponsor you need help financially and Paul has a great relationship with the city uh, obviously it's a big boon for tourism to have people coming from 40 countries you know around the world um, so he was able to get like funding from the city each year to help us uh, and beyond the funding thing also just knowing people you know I was like I want to make sure we have a really high level like organic chef preparing all the food he's like okay my friend Michelle you know she's an award winning you know chef blah 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 blah. you know oh we need this he's like I know that person you know so he, he was able to kind of procure things to make the festival work and it went so well the first year I was completely sold so given the ethos of the festival it would seem to me the artist in residence decision is a key one last year was Esperanza Spalding and this year was Lionel Lueke from Benin from what? Benin what were some of the great moments of collaboration involving those two? well um I mean, all of them. <laughs> uh, well, for example, Esperanza played with David Crosby, right? Yeah, Esperanza sat in with Crosby. She did this really interesting kind of artist-to-artist interview with Becca Stevens because they, they've been friends. They went to school together, you know. They're very close friends, and so they interviewed each other and played tunes together. And um, Esperanza sat, sat in with Terrence Blanchard. You know, that was beautiful. This year, Lionel... And uh, did a set with Joshua Redman and, and a drummer, Larnell Lewis, and myself. That was really cool. He nice. Sat in, he sat in with Banda Magda. He sat in with uh, with Becca Stevens. He did a solo set late night at the hotel, like one in the morning, um, which is just beautiful to hear him sing and play just by himself. Um, it's great, you know. And the cool thing is, like, I don't know how many people at that festival had ever heard of Lionel Loeke, you know. But that's the really cool thing about not having growth as a festival goal, you know, is that you just take all of this pressure off yourself. You know, if selling tickets, like, like we, you know, we're only selling, like, we don't want to sell more than 1,600 tickets a day or 1,700 tickets a day because then it stops feeling intimate considering the size of the grounds that we have. It's very cozy, you know? So it's like selling more tickets is not our goal. So we don't need to feel the pressure of bringing in some huge artist that might not be the best fit musically. Like most festivals have that pressure. Yeah, and you're not looking for you're not looking for the um, the fan base to be just people there to fill seats. You're the, these are real listeners. Yeah, of course. Yeah, they're 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 arguably the most important part of the festival. But is there any pressure preparation-wise? If you're going to play with, like, the Joshua Redman set, do you just go out there and improvise, or no, do you no, get no, to no. get together? We rehearsed. And we so you, how many different artists are you rehearsing with in advance of this festival? And that? I mean, most of the bands are having a rehearsal. But you're playing with, like, ten, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I played with a lot of groups this year. It, it was not... I don't want to say that it's not what I wanted, because it was a pleasure to play with every single one of them. Um... Next year I'll be playing with less. I'll just we'll just put it like that. Right. But it, each one was like a total joy. But you know that's the nature of just like inviting your friends to play the festival. I mean I have a personal relationship with every single artist that plays the festival. The only person that I had never met was Concha Buica. She was the only one that I had never met before the festival. But I'm like a massive fan of hers. You know, so yeah. I mean that's it's very different the way the festival runs from other other ones I mean we there are enough great festivals in the world with big headliners and huge crowds and 
it's like we just don't want to do that we want it to be like a backyard party we want the audience to be accountable and you, you want know. to be able to see your favorite musicians and play with them, so... <laughs> also that, yeah. I mean, for me, I'm just basically creating my own little paradise and inviting people. I mean, that's how I look at it, you know? I- and bring Town National, and maybe someday there'll be a Bocante Town National tour. Maybe. Um, now, you say producing is your true love. <clears throat> really. It seems to be your, where you're getting your most joy. But you are having so much fun up there on stage. Mm-hmm. What is it about pr- producing that is uh, more moving to you now than composing or playing? I mean, I wouldn't say it's more. I mean, it's 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 the most recent thing that I've kind of dived head into, you know, head first into. Um, I mean, I've been producing records for twelve years or something, fourteen years. But like recently, I've been able to work with artists outside of like my normal zone. Like I just did a record with produced a record for Susanna Baca, who's like a folkloric, like a seventy plus old folkloric Afro-Peruvian musician, you know. I was there last month doing that. I produced the last David Crosby record. The gentleman know. from Buena Vista Social Club? Oh, uh, Eliades Ochoa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. From And you know. was it just your label, or did you also do Roosevelt's? I did, that's, uh, no, I did that one as well. Yeah, Roosevelt Collier. So you're busy. Yeah, I mean, it's great. And, you know, and this these two artists, Alina Yanjibadi on this Armenian-Russian singer, it's more of like a jazz groove thing, and then Siren Tip, which is more like an electronica pop weird jazz thing and like it's it's so stimulating to like to go into these different environments with these different people and different genres and different bands and like basically like have a baby with them yeah how much i mean being young and like you said going into some of these new styles of music right how much are you the director or what what is what's your gift because you're i mean when i look at it it's not like you're coming to these musicians saying hey you know i've been playing your style of music for 80 years and you should (laughs) There's got to be like a give and take there, right? Yeah, uh, it depends. It's just totally case by case. All right, let's go with Eliadis. A, a yeah, you yeah. went to Cuba to produce this record, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how did you select the studio, and how was it? This American, you're kind of young kid coming into Cuba and calling the shots <laughs> in the studio. I kind of, I, I respect that. That, that was, I would be intimidated. <laughs> calling the shots might be an overstatement. I mean, okay. I, I mean, well, I, it depends if they're like the, what do they call the little espressos in Cuba? Uh, oh wow, I don't know. I think they just call them cafe. I don't know, I don't know. what. Just, just, good, just ignore him. <laughs> something I'm not privy to uh, the I mean that's a good example of, of uh, I mean so no one spoke English right um, I rolled into Havana with some demos of Eliades just playing like guitar and singing right so my role in this situation was to choose the songs of the 25 songs that he sent me like which 11 are going to work. All originals. Um, n- not Never before recorded originals. The majority of them. There were one or two that were like old famous Cuban songs. Okay. But the majority of them were new original songs that he wrote, you know. But they sound kind of traditional, you know. He's from the East, from from Santiago and Cuba, and they have a very specific style there. Um, uh, so, so I rolled in. Uh, no one spoke English. You know, I, I mean, my Spanish is better now, but at that time it wasn't fantastic. But I had to do the whole session in Spanish, which was interesting. Um, did you learn it for that, or did you no, learn no, that I've at been, University of North Texas? I've been no, I've been neither. Kind of in in the middle. I, I have been kind of just working on it individually for a while, and then that made me really have to kind of get it together, <laughs> sharpen up. And so I walked in, and he's with his band. You know, his son and these two guys. Everybody, you know, the youngest guys in his late 40s you know I mean these are like 
older Cuban dudes who've been playing together for decades, and they've been playing the same way. You know, every song starts off with a three-beat guitar intro, and then the band comes in, they sing the verses and the choruses, Eliades takes a solo, they sing a chorus, and they end together. Every song. Every time, you know? So it was like, my gig, I mean, that's just like, it's like, this is how it's done in this style of music, you know? And my gig, the reason why I was brought in, was to kind of change that with a band that isn't necessarily into changing that. To break the traditional structures and do something unique and new. I gotcha. But not, you know, I mean, not put a DJ on the shit. You right, know, not but reinvent like, the wheel. Right, but to provide the album with some elements that, that will make the record stand out. Can you give us an example of that? From Sure, yeah, I mean, there was one. <laughs> Maybe one I mean, we could play. This is so funny. I mean, it's like, there was one tune called Carino Falso that like is a really beautiful tune and, and one of the one of the easiest things I could get them to do like kind of without argument was like let's let's have the first verse and chorus be just guitar bass and voice and then we'll come in with the percussion at this certain moment later just so that there's some kind of contour to the track so they were all like okay well we normally don't do that but we'll try it you know and then they were kind of into it they were like oh that's different and cool you know and I was like okay one victory, you know? <laughs> so I use that on a lot of tunes. And that must be a great feeling, these accomplished musicians, and you're influencing them. I mean, you definitely feel something weird being white and talking to Cuban musicians and, like, in this kind of productorial, if that's a word, way. And you're surrounded by the greatest street music in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's you feel this kind of, like, guilt... Of like, because we have a tradition. I mean, white people have a tradition of kind of co-opting culture. <laughs> you know, I mean, in good ways and bad ways. I mean, you know, like blues probably wouldn't be around the world if like a white person wouldn't have gone out and field recorded it and like you know publicized. I mean, you know. I mean, we're getting into a danger zone talking about race, but it's like white people market. You know what I mean? It's like it's that's their thing, and you can feel kind of like an exploiter at times. Like I feel like I felt a little uncomfortable there. Well, you're not colonizing, is the point? I was hired. Yeah. I didn't ask to do this record. A, you know, a Cuban guy asked me yeah. to to produce this album. You know, so it, so it's like that I could take some comfort in but you have to be sensitive you know I have to be sensitive to the situation and not come in as the big shot American right. with the huge ego and the music industry you know clout and like telling you know you simple Cubans what to play or something you know what I mean it's like you go into this situation with an immense respect for the history of this music you know I mean I, I've been in love with Cuban music my whole life but I had to do research before this record. I had to check out the music from Oriente, you know, from the eastern part of Cuba. I, I went to Matanzas and, like, stayed there for a few days and dug in to Rumba. Of course, a few days is nothing. But, you know, like, met the people from Muñequitos and Afro-Cuba and these, like, groups that have been around since the 50s, you know, that are still around. And, like, you really have to go in with, a, with an immense sense of respect and humility you know, in order to ask these guys who are masters of their craft to do something different than they've been doing for the last 60 years, you know? And a lot of the things that I did were different weren't in the studio. So we did this tune. Sorry, I digress, but we went no, to... No, please do. We did Carino Falso, and I told them to come in later, and then we started recording recording the choruses where they all sing together, the coro. 
And I told them, they always sing in three-part harmony. Always. Every coro is in three-part harmony. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. For the coros, before the percussion entrance, let's do it in unison. And they looked at me like I was a fucking alien. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was like, they were like, you mean together, like together. And I to was like... To set a contrast, basically, right? Yeah, so that when the, then the band comes in, like the percussion finally comes in, the groove drops, it feels really great, and immediately it splits into three-part harmony. Yeah. And it's like a, it's like a beautiful moment. You know, but they were like so skeptical. I mean, they were like, they were like, uh, is he speak? Is he saying what he means to say, or is this a translation thing? Or no, I was like, no, really, you know, unison, like together. And then we did it, and then they came and listened to it, and they loved it. You know, I mean, they were like, yeah. and it, to me, I'm like, wow, man, how deep is tradition in this country where the idea of singing a coro in unison just hadn't occurred? To them, because the, the the system in place is so good and so solid, and the rules, when applied, function so well. When I do this, you do this, and that's how we've done it for a long time, and that's how we're going to keep doing it. You know that those kind of thoughts hadn't occurred to them, and that's kind of why I was there. Like in that way, my gringo ness was an asset to the recording session because I was viewing things with a very very tiny lens, a very thin lens, whereas they're viewing. It through a lens of decades and centuries of tradition, so it's kind of hard to get through all of that kind of built-up bias. So let know? me ask you this: David Crosby's also viewing things through several decades of his own experience. Were there moments like that with him? Were there new things that you brought to him that at first he was like, "What are you talking about?" And then it, it kind of brought a new side of things to him, or is that a different? There's a reason why old people are stubborn. Do <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a re- there's a reason for it. It's because they've done shit throughout their whole lives that was awesome. <laughs> so they have like they know they have like the living experience of knowing what is awesome. And especially somebody like Crosby, he didn't just create great art. He was famous. He was rich. He was like a god of folk. And rock music. He was and, iconic. If I may say one thing, I've been seeing music a long time. I've seen a ton of shows. And one of the most memorable things is just him and Graham singing Guinevere. Every single time, it would just give me chills and mesmerize me. But continue, please. Yeah, I mean, he's... That's part of his lexicon. He's heavy. He's so heavy. And he's... And he's stubborn. So, are, speaking, you talking, are you talking about Rob? <laughs> <laughs> I'm heavy. This also, Crosby. stubborn. <laughs> I mean, he's stubborn... But he's exceptionally open-minded. Exceptional. I mean, it's it's startling to me that a 76-year-old guy who has had the world in the palm of his hand for so long is, first off, is so prolific. I mean, I was at his house 10 days ago writing with him, and he's. I was like, all right, what do you got to work with? And he's like, these 11 sets of lyrics, I have these nine guitar ideas that are, you know, mm. in different tunings. I mean, it's like... Yeah, that's what he's known for, very creative tunings, right? He's mm, still doing that, huh? Yeah, exactly. And he's writing with James, his son, a lot? Yeah, he basically, yeah, he, like James produces his more like electric records and I produce his more acoustic records. Gotcha. So, I mean, the guy is like, I mean, it's, it's, it's... When you really think about it, it's it's overwhelming. It's like how he's still such a fireball of creativity, you know? So how can you not go into a situation with him and not be intimidated by him at all? I think because we're, we're, we have a dynamic that 
is uh, natural. Natural. I think we're very similar people. You know, I'm. I'm. I, you know, it just we're products of very different generations. You know, he was twenty. He was a millionaire. You know, free love, free drugs. I grew up in a generation where it's like partying hard as a musician is like having an IPA with your bowl of organic kale. Right. And love is very expensive. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it's, you know, that, that makes us different, but our attitudes are the same. Like we don't take anything seriously. We take, we take everything seriously, but at the same time, like we're, but we both love to bullshit. We love to make fun of each other. We love to, you know, it's like, there's a there's a mutual understanding and and there's just I don't know how to explain it other than like a very healthy dynamic between the two of us. I will say that the first time I went to his home to write, he gave me like a a guitar part, like a whole kind of verse and chorus, and he's like, I don't really know what to do with this. And so I was like, Alright, let's do a brainstorm for lyrics. So I gave him a concept, you know, basically about uh, well, no, actually, it was his concept. He said, he was like, I said, what is, is there anything you want to write about? And he said, I want to write about people who send other people's kids to war. And so I was like, okay, very cool, you know, fortunate son kind of vibe, mm-hmm. you know. And so I was like, all right, what do you think of when you think of that? And he just did like a stream of consciousness brainstorm. He just like kind of just verbal diarrhea for... 10 minutes is this are you recording oh you're writing it it down on a sheet of paper i just wrote it all down like like whenever you'd say a phrase that i liked i would just write it down write it down you know blah 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 and then i was like all right like take a nap you know so (laughs) he went and took a nap and i took it all all the ideas and wrote lyrics and formed it into a story and did a melody and three hours later he came in and i sang it to him which was that was intimidating. I'll tell you. I mean, right. this was the only intimidating moment I've had with Crosby, I would say, is the first time that I sang to him my lyrics. Right. On his song, with his ideas. like When he's coming out of a nap, you commanded him to take. <laughs> and, did you, <laughs> and did you sing it like yourself or like him? Like me. Like me. And I sang it to him. And, and he was like, I mean, he was just like, you know, you motherfucker, I didn't know you could write lyrics. I thought you had an instrumental band, you know? I was like, well, I, te- I didn't really write these. I mean, it's kind of like you kind of just like shat gold on this sheet of paper, and then I just, I just kind of like sanded the edges of it, you know? And he was like, he was like, totally, this is brilliant, this is brilliant. This line fucking sucks, but the rest of this is, br- you know? And, and like, that was your line. Yeah, exactly. And then it was just like right off to the, to the and then it was like from that moment, that was our system, and that's still our system. With the naps still, naps built in, totally built in. Yeah, we did it. We did it a week and a half ago, and and I would say that after that moment, I mean, that's terrifying showing your lyrics to your favorite lyricist. You know what I mean? And then singing, I just felt I felt kind of vulnerable. But then when he once he got into it, when he showed that he was into this system, then from then on we were just running. We did three tunes in three days, Mm. you know, from start to finish, and and we just did three more. A week and a half ago for this new record with Becca Stevens and Michelle Willis and Crosby and I, like like a four, kind of like a CSNY thing, but Michelle's playing Moog bass and Rhodes, mm. Becca's playing ukulele, charango, guitars, I'm playing weird guitars, and Cross is playing guitar and singing, and four-part harmony, and each of us are taking turns singing lead, and all this kind of stuff, you know? So it's really interesting. It's a very interesting project. 
David is, uh, I mean, I don't know anyone his age that is doing it like he's doing it. There are guys, James Taylor, you know, I mean, Paul Simon, there are guys that are still doing it. But to the degree that David is, like, I don't know, man. I mean, he's made three records in four years at 76 years old. And he's working on his fourth. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. It's it's the guy is like it's 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 like it's like a meteor. And is he is he working with other cats too to uh, inspire him with um, with his lyrics and stuff like that, or is this? Yeah. Because you mentioned his son, and then he, there's... he writes with his son. He did a tune with Michael McDonald for the last record um, on the record. The last record that I produced, he did one with Mark Cohen. Oh, really? Who wrote uh, "Walking to Memphis"? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, great guy. Um, he did he's been writing with Becca Stevens a lot writing with Michelle a little bit writing with Bill Lawrence he and Bill Lawrence from Snarky Puppy did a beautiful tune that we're going to record a song to his son it's called Your Own Ride that's just like the lyrics are like like no dry eyes you know I mean there's something about being I hope he doesn't hear this interview there's something about being (laughs) he won't in touch with your sense of mortality (laughs) I think that really kicks something into high gear. And it's very interesting for me. Of course, I could die tomorrow. No, no, we know what you're talking about. We we were very close to the Colonel Bruce. And one of the things is he, um, before his birthday, which also was his funeral, um, we taught, we, Rob and I actually had conversations with him in regards to just that. And it's, it's, it's because it, all of a sudden, like, you know, when you hit, when you're 20, everything's ahead of you. When you're 50, it's kind of in this middle and then when you're 70 and 80 you're looking at the it's yeah mm-hmm. you're closing things up and what I mean but that's like well, what's it like and the answer was well you know you go to bed at night and the shit you didn't get done you realize you're not going to get done I, I want to add to you maybe that's why he's getting so much done you may, you have a Colonel-esque quote associated with you say if there's no genuine intent behind music it won't nourish your soul that's something you said and that's exactly like the kind of thing Colonel Bruce Hampton would say since you brought him up I said that yeah and the nourish your soul, I think I added, but you talk a lot. <laughs> you talk a lot about intent. That's the big thing, of course. In genuineness of intent, and that was like one of the tenets of, of Colonel Bruce. Mm. Um, but, but before we get yeah, away, yeah, before we get away from David, Joni Mitchell was a good friend of his. Yeah, David gave her her start and produced her first record. Right. We quote her a lot. She has a thing called "Kill Mommy," and the reason I bring it up is that you talk about playing your record collection and composing your record collection, and the "Kill Mommy's about. The influence that is the largest upon you, you sometimes have to stop listening to completely to let yourself come out. Have you had mommies, and who have the mommies been that you've had to kill? The same that every bass player has. So Jocko. Jocko. <laughs> <laughs> and, and ironically, you're, you're playing your festival in Miami. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. Yeah. <laughs> the home of Jocko and Matheny. And, oh, you know. yeah, yeah. I forgot Matheny's from the... Well, I don't know if he's from well, Miami, he's but from he went... He went Midwest. to he, Yeah, he's from Lee's Summit, okay. Missouri, but he went to the uh, University of Miami, or Miami University. You University, University of Miami. And Boston claims him now. Yes, of course. They claim everybody. <laughs> Even the ones they, they failed. Uh, um, the... Uh, what was the question? The mommies you've had to kill, other than Jocko. Yeah. Um, like Hinton, or... Um, you know, uh, actually... Wayne Krantz. Oh, really? Who I still play gigs with, which is really funny because Wayne Krantz, because I'm a guitar player also, and... Remember, it's a metaphor. I'm not going to kill Wayne. (laughs) Don't worry. Um, 
we we uh, when we were in college, you know, my friend Steve showed me this Wayne Krantz record called Two Drink Minimum, a live record with Zach Danziger and Lincoln Goins at the 55 Bar in New York. And this guy's guitar concept just, like, ripped my head open. And then I bought this record called Long To Be Loose with the same rhythm section, a much more, like, kind of compositional record. And I just listened to this stuff over and over and over, and a lot of the early Snarky Puppy tunes really sound like Wayne Krantz blown out for a larger ensemble, you know? Um, and then just like well I guess when I moved to New York I played a gig with them or something and then now we play kind of regularly together and it's really funny playing with them now because I really had to just like cut I had to quit Wayne Kratz I had to like cut myself off cold turkey and that now I like go back on Thursdays and play gigs with them and it starts to like get back in my <laughs> you know because it's just that's such a big part of of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a of a of a formative period in my life you know Jocko when I was in high school Wayne when I was in college you know and many other people too there's a lot of moms you have mommies you have to kill I think you know but they stay with you it's not really that you kill them you just kind of like mute them mute them yeah I maybe mean, mute your mommy is a better term huh? <laughs> well yeah I've been trying to mute my mom for a while Jewish mother <laughs> mine's Greek I know that same same thing I want to skip to something I had kind of talked at the end here but you talked about how you prepared for the you know, producing your Cuban artist, but can you talk about Jules Buckley and how you prepared for Silva? And um, sure, because this is a sym- symphonic album, and that that's it's just another example of how amazing you are, how how varied oh, yeah. you are. It's just it, it just is what it is. Talk about that. What was the initial impetus for it? How did you find Jules? How receptive was he? Did you have to win him over to get his time to do this? And no, really, he's a homie. He's like. Explain who he's the uh, Berlin. Sorry, Jules lives in Berlin, but he's the the conductor in residence, I guess you would call him, or the direct director of the Metropole Orchestra in the Netherlands, in in Hilversum. Um, we were doing a live recording session for a record called "We Like It Here" in in uh, in Utrecht. And when Holland. I bring you up, a lot of your fans bring that record up right away. It's the last live in studio with audience album that we that we did without guests we did family dinner too after that but like real like real snarky puppy stuff you know that's the record that lingus is on and shofu khan and what about me and some of the songs that kind of are more known among our fans shofu khan's one shofu crosby khan, yeah. identified as his favorite right so um so during that recording session my friend frederica invited the heads the managers of the metropole to come to the session and they came, and I've known the Metropole for many years. They did a beautiful record with Yvonne Linz that won some Grammys. They recorded with Shaka Khan, with uh, Elvis Costello, with everybody, Marcus Miller, you know. Um, and so I was like, oh, wow, the Metropole's here. And then after, we had after party with, like, you know, a hang. And they came up to me, and they were like, wow, that was really great. And I was like, oh, thank you so much for coming. Really nice. And, and uh, they were like, do you want to do a record? And I was like... Wait, really? That must <laughs> like, for you. Well, it does because at that point, Snarky Bubby had been a band for 11 years or something, 10 years. This is just before the first Grammy? Or just after? It was just before. It was just before. I think... Yeah, we didn't have... I don't think we had a Grammy then. I mean... Um, 
You get used to people not giving a shit about you. Oh, believe me, yeah, I know. I mean, you get used to it. You know, it's like we that spent a decade of me trying to convince every jazz writer to do an article of us, every manager to represent us, every book. I mean, I would just look at all my favorite artists. You know, oh, who's Charlie Hunter's booking agent? Okay, I'm going to send them an email and see if they'd be interested in booking us. No. You know, it's just like, you just get no from everybody. Can we play at your club? No, we'll play for free. Maybe. You know, like, you just, <laughs> well, it, okay. just it becomes, it becomes a part of your identity. Yeah. And that part has not left me. No, but then you get, like, the Paul Levines, uh, who is a promoter at Bear Creek, who comes and calls you guys and people like, who's Snarky Puppy? And then... Opens you up to, you know, to this whole region. Or the Absolutely. Kevin Scotts, who, when you're looking for an Atlanta gig, you know, makes you part of his. Totally. And you rely on these people. These are the people that you rely on. The one individual that kind of, kind of takes a leap of faith and risks a lot of stuff to, you know, to help you out mm-hmm. and to provide you with an opportunity. Well, but, um, the, but, but on that note, then, let me ask you, who's, uh, are you still with Eric Gerber? We are, yeah. So Eric Gerber, for our listeners, is an independent uh, booking agent and manager and uh, many and father of many things. Uh, but you could be with a major, and you may be with a major agency as well, but you still work with Eric and on the independent level, and, and you guys are internationally, and mm. that's, that's, you know, that's, there's something to be said about that. Yeah, I mean, we're, look, it's a, it's a, it's a slippery slope when you start making decisions based on it's not even a a specific criteria it's like I could fire Eric and get some big shot guy in a high office in Manhattan to represent the band and make a lot more money per gig and I'd be more comfortable and the guys in my band would be more comfortable I could fire Mike Chadwick our manager and get some guy in a big office who could get us whatever opportunities I could fire my trumpet player and get Terrence Blanchard or something. I could fire our drummer and get what, you know, what I could... You Antonio just, Sanchez. <laughs> you could do, I mean, you can go down every hole and then, uh. but ultimately then you're like, well, shit, man, I'm not the best bass player in the world either. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the best band leader in the world. You know, I, you know, I'm not the best composer. It's like, where does it end? You yeah. fire everybody and then you fire yourself and then, you know, it's like... It's like the is, New York Yankees. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. Yeah, this is not the world that you want to build. You know, you don't dump your girlfriend because you meet a girl that's a little bit prettier or went to a better college or what, you know what I mean? Like you, you create relationships with human beings and those relationships have value beyond some kind of cold business aesthetic, you know, like you, you like, I mean, in the music world, your work is your life. The time that you give to your work is, is, is precious. You know, it's like, it's not just showing up and punching in at the nine to five. It's like, this is how we, you know, there's a great quote. It's the the way we spend our, our days is the way we spend our lives, right? Or the way we spend our, our minutes or our hours or something. Mm -hmm. It's the way we spend our lives. And it's very, very true. It's like, we're doing what we're doing every minute. This interview, you know, the song I was writing when you walked in, the gig I play tonight, these would all involve relationships. And you can't just ditch those relationships because there's an opportunity for something that's going to make you more fucking money. It's like so short-sighted and ridiculous. Well, and, and often uh, with a lot of, especially the up-and-coming bands, when they hit a certain level, 
Uh, there's it does make sense at times to move. You know, if your if your agent can't take you to the next place and they're not at the level, that's one thing. But often when people just say, "I'm going to go with that agency because they're their opportunities," they get shuffled and ends up losing right, out right. on every on. And because, like you said, relationship, they thought they were the X Y Z band thought they were the shit, mm-hmm. but the clubs that they were getting and that were growing them aren't taking them because the relationship's gone and then the and then they're falling that they're the bottom of the list right. at that agency and then you end up with no friends yeah right. that too you know because at least yeah. if like our band goes down the tubes I can still have Gerber over to my place for a beer and we have like a history and a friendship yeah. and a relationship yeah. and that's in place I mean I, I'm not saying that you should never fire anyone sure there are no, certain no, moments we, where we people you, become a liability or they're just not a good fit you know we had a drummer in our band years and years and years ago like over a decade ago and he's a fantastic drummer but he wasn't right for the music you know and so we had to like get another drummer you know and sometimes it's that way with agents maybe the agent isn't right for your band maybe they're just like better for another band or better for another scene and that's one thing but it's like you know, the fact that someone else could do the job better, to me, is just like saying, oh, I met a prettier girl. It's like, well, yeah, that's cool, but, like, you have a relationship with this other person, and if the relationship is good, that's not something to, to be discounted. Now, Rob, I want you to pay attention to him on that, okay? Because I, I know you're you. looking for another coach. You can take that. You can take that <laughs> By the way, it's R.S. Turner at Gmail. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. But let's that was a great tangent. But let's dial back. So now they've approached you. The folks at Metropole have attended your session oh, and well, right. approached right. you to do the record. I, I really want to get into this. So now what's the next step? Well, I was just saying that you define yourself as an as a as an untouchable. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 we were untouchables at that point. Not untouchables like the movie <laughs> with Kevin Costner, you know. Uh, where they're cool, like untouchables, like we're not cool, like don't go near these people. They play large ensemble, instrumental, jazz-based music that isn't jazz, and they're really loud, you know, don't book them. Don't get them anywhere near you. And we were really like that for like a long time. People just wouldn't touch us with a stick. Which if I may jump in real quick, you that's one of the reasons you did the live studio things was because people have shorter attention spans and YouTube was a hot thing. So you would put it out there and as a way to make it instrumental music more inviting to people, right. if you will. Yeah, because when people saw how it was made, it became more interesting rather than just hearing it. They're just waiting for the singer to come in. You know? Plus having the live, the live crowd reacting and it's probably informs the music as well. Big time. Yeah, so we had kind of defined ourselves in this way, and and in many ways now, you know, seven years later, or uh, five years later, you know, we've had a lot of success, actually, considering our genre and all that kind of stuff, but there's still this thing in all of us that just doesn't believe it when someone like Lionel Lueke says, hey, man, can I play a tune with you guys? We're like, why would you want to play a tune? Like, you know, like that, that mentality is still kind of inside of us. Um, and when the Metropole asked this, I was just like, wait a minute, you mean I don't have to beg you to do this and then you say no? Like, normally that's how it goes. I beg you to do this and you say no. And they came up to us and were like, we want to do this. So two days later, we had a meeting in Rotterdam with our manager and them. And we booked the recording session for like six months later, I think. Like April, because I think we did the record in like October, November. We like it here. And then they said, okay, April, Silva, let's do it. And I was like, amazing, great. Oh, my God, April, that's like so – I can't believe – like it's such a dream. And then like it was like February and I realized, oh, shit, I don't have any days off <laughs> before – I have to write like 60 mu- minutes of orchestral music. And from the end of We Like It Here to the day we recorded Silva, I didn't have a single day off. 
And can I point out, when you're writing orchestral music, that means you're writing parts for <clears throat> 60, 70 pieces, right? This is 52, like 52, yeah. So that's like writing 52 songs, sort of, each song. Kind of? It's, no, I wouldn't say it's like that. I mean, I would say that it's, um, I wouldn't say that it's, you know, 52 times harder than writing for one person because there's the, the orchestra's organized in sections. So, you know, if you have a three, if you have something that you want in three part harmony and you want the whole orchestra playing it, you can, you just choose how to distribute that, that, that chord voicing. Dude, that's why the orchestras I wrote are such a mess. <laughs> yes, Rob. Okay. Uh, but Ding. Go, but go further with that because uh, you were, uh, Rob was actually bringing a point to me earlier is that when um, you have uh, several different writers in the band, right? So how does that work? Where everyone well, let's get to that after this. But okay. I want to talk about Jules Buckley and how he helps right. you, and that's absolutely what I want to talk about in this. In a second. So basically, I wrote I wrote all the tunes on that record, and I did the arrangements in Logic. Um, so like I had like French horn one, French horn two, French horn three, clarinet one, blah blah blah. Like in the Logic session, and I have everything distributed, and then I went to Jules's house because Jules is like a, the fastest person I've ever seen in my life at plugging music into a score. So I went to him. And he plugged it all into the score, and then we looked at it together, and he would say, maybe it's best to, to leave the French horns out here. You know, maybe, it's, maybe you should write a counter melody here. Can you here. hear that when, when, you look at, when you look at the, uh, when yeah. you see it all written down, can you hear it in your yeah. head? Wow. Sure, yeah. I mean, not like I, it's not like you show me a score that I've never seen <laughs> before, and I can go, oh, uh, and like <laughs> no, but sing it up. I know people who are like that. <laughs> Jules is like that. Yeah. Wow. Even with the, with the staves transposed, you know, because... There are B flat instruments, E flat instruments. Uh-huh. So, like, you'll see a C on the score, but it's actually an A, or it's actually a D, you know, or something. Okay. You know, it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, and he can really do that. He's he's amazing. I mean, he's one of my very close friends. He's not a typical orchestral conductor in any sense, other than the fact that he knows his shit about orchestral music. But he knows his shit about a lot of different kinds of music. He's young. He's like thirty-seven or thirty-eight.
love it. And we just did a new record together with Bocante, my other band. Um, Great band, by the way. Thank you very much. Which you play baritone guitar in, right? That's right, yeah. And on this new record, it's an acoustic, fully acoustic album. Because the, the first record, you know, it's like Roosevelt, yeah. Call You're Playing Steel, and I'm playing baritone guitar. There's two other guitar players, three percussionists, and a singer from the Caribbean who's singing in Creole and French. And on this record, we did it all acoustic, so I'm playing oud. Um, the guys are playing like baritone guitar, acoustic baritone guitar and regular, like 12 string acoustic guitar. Roosevelt's playing dobro. What? Really? Wow. I didn't even know he And and (laughs) then there's a symphony orchestra. Has he ever done that before? Yeah, but I don't think he's ever like recorded like that, but he's a great dobro player. And then, and then there's a symphony orchestra there. So we just did this January 5th through 9th, Jules and I recorded the the orchestra and it's like, it's, it's a very interesting album, man. Like very weird. When's it coming out? Um, I think end of August. Do you want uh, to reveal any anyone on this episode? We're more than happy to close out with it. We'll debut something tonight. Like. <laughs> it's not mixed. It's L- not let's mixed. get into yeah, what yeah. Seth was saying, though. <clears throat> you have multiple composers. They compose a song, and they write all the parts out, and they bring it to you guys. But then the other musicians make adjustments. Is that right? That's correct. That's exactly correct. So to what extent... Does the musician, do the other musicians have freedom to make the adjustments without violating the initial vision of the song? How, how do you walk that line? It depends who the composer is. Certain guys are more... Okay, for you. Precious. The ones that you write. Where would you say you are on that? <clears throat> I mean, the kind of joke we have in the band is like, do whatever you want as long as it's better than what I wrote. <laughs> you know? I don't think anybody in the band has pride about what they've written. They just want their shit to sound good. So if I write something for somebody and they play something different and it makes my shit sound better, I'm not going to tell them not to play it out of pride. You know what I mean? I'm like, man, do that. That's great. That's way better than I thought. And often other people's creative interjections are actually more relevant to the song than the part that you wrote for the song. It's like they're more to the point than your thing is. So you kind of just like get the idea and then then they they sought it Spread expound. out, expound, yeah. Yeah, but we always start with everyone <clears throat> learning the parts exactly. Hmm. That's very important. Because laziness mm-hmm. and creative license can easily be confused. So these musicians, you know? then, you have very few uh, negativity. You have you don't have, like, um, no, defensiveness no. You can't, as a band. It can't, and it, lot, not a lot of ego. You say it you can't, can't but creative people often can create in different ways, right? Oh, sure. And, I mean, there's plenty of... Lively discussion, <laughs> spirited debate, spirited so, debate. You, as your your group of musicians that make Snarky Puppy, that's a lot of people, and yeah. that to me is a lot of ego to manage. Regardless, it's about forty or so. Where's it at now? Maybe it was. I mean, in regular rotation, we have like twenty people, <clears throat> and on the road you have nine, but they they shift in and shift out. That's exactly right. It's. You know, we, I mean, I like to call it a democratic dictatorship, you know, because it's like everybody has equal say, but at the end of the day, one person has to make the call. Right. But now let's moving into the live realm where you have this backlog of material and you have an ever changing lineup and you're doing different shows every night. Mm -hmm. Um, That's amazing to me. I mean, do you have to re-rehearse all the material before every show with the new lineup? No, we never rehearse. So everyone just comes in with their knowledge of how you've recorded it, and then they interpret it on the fly. Yes. Now, last night, it seemed like at points, 
you knew what solos were coming and what weren't, and at other points you were directing the band. So do you know what songs where it's like, this is open-ended and this is more structured? Yeah, because it's it's not like the guys just learn the record and then they jump on stage and play. It's like every guy that's jumping on stage and playing has played those songs dozens or hundreds of times. Of course, but there's got to be points where it's more open than others. Absolutely. So do you convey that in the moment, or is it more... We, yeah, we just have a system of communication that has been established over many years in which... We're all, like, kind of sensitive, I mean, to a word that's very overused, but to the vibe of what's going on. Like, if we hit a section and the groove feels good, no one is thinking that the groove does not feel good. We all think the groove... Like, there's, like, a collective sense of what's happening and what's not happening. Like, what's good and what's not good. And when we are in something that's good, everybody's kind of antennae go up. And then I can make a call, like, oh, this feels really good, let's not go to the melody yet. Or let's not go to the next section, and all I got to do is like swirl my finger around, like saying like repeat. Or like something. there was toward the end of the night last night, there was a song where that happened. Right, and there was another moment where like the keyboard shit was so funky that I would like I I only wanted to hear them, so I just point to them and I tell everybody else to break. So on beat one of of an eight bar phrase, a bar one, we break and it's just keyboards, and then that. Then everybody's antennae are up, so they're hearing just keyboards, and people start thinking, oh, what else can happen here? What else can happen here? And then I can, like, sense if the horn players, if they're, like, looking at each other, like, oh, maybe we have a horn line, then I can, like, give them time to get that together and play it, and then maybe that horn line has a hit in it that the band can can jump in on. So I'll look at the drummer, and the drummer's already listening to the horn line. So it's like, there's just, like, a lot of, like, I don't want to call it telepathy. It's pretty close to it, though. Yeah. It's just... Well, that's the music, the language of music, right The language there. of music. And it's basically like, what I would like... The best way I can describe it is what I'm doing is confirming and mandating obvious decisions. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. I'm like coordinating... I should say that. Well, coordinating. Like sports in a way. It, it, that's, that's the basketball part, right? Right. It's obvious that this guy's always open on the baseline, so let's get him the ball, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever. And it's, that's kind of how it goes. Um... What about, there was one point, the the part that I thought was most away from the structure of a song last night mm-hmm. was actually, the, what's the gentleman's name who plays trumpet and keyboards? There was one point where... Justin Stanton. It broke down to him and the drummers and percussion, uh-huh. and it got way out there. <laughs> it did. Did that happen spontaneously? Is yes. that something you're like, let's go, let's leave them? That section of that song, it's always a soloist and the drummer. Oh, and it's a different soloist every time? And it's a different soloist every oh, time. And so they can go wherever they want. Wherever they want, they have the complete freedom, but we know where we're going to go afterwards. So the challenge, the little game, is where can we take this thing that when we come out of it, it still makes sense to go where we need to go. It's not just free improvis- improvisation that's misguided. It's like, we know where we just came from, and we know where we're going, but how do we get there? And I say it's always the drummer and a soloist, but some nights the band doesn't leave the stage and other guys want to also play. So it can be different. You know, if you notice, actually Bill stayed on stage, the other keyboard player, and at a certain moment he came in. So it's just like, there's just no rules, really. We just know what works and what doesn't work, and we like taking risks, I guess. That kind of, your friends Zuffrey McGee and Ryan Sasek, the bassist, speaks particularly highly of you. That reminds me of them, where sometimes their fans complain that it's not free enough improv, (laughs) but they, they, never noodles, never gets too... Noodly. Right. Yeah. They know where they're going, but they still can take us on some rides sometimes. Did you, when you played with them, did you watch their set as well? Of course, yeah, I always watch their set. And what struck you about them, uh, you know? I mean, to be honest, they're kind of like... 
refreshing in that scene. Because when you go to a jam band festival or something, you know, by that third or fourth band, you're just like, all right, like, another one chord trip out, you know? And like, the soloing over chord changes. Right. Sounding and, like Jerry. Turn the knob one way, you sound like Jerry. Turn the other, you sound like Trey. Right. And that can get, that can be an interesting thing in context, you know, just like a, you know, like sweet potato souffle is really wonderful in context, but you don't want to eat a mountain of it. Right. You know? And so it's like... Look who you're talking to here, though. <laughs> But the 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 thing that I like about Humphreys is that there really is an emphasis on composition. And there is a structure, and like in their scene, I think they provide a really nice part of the diet. Would you think? On the plate, would you, know? you say though that perhaps that even what you just said there that their listeners then it's like a stepping stone even into being able to listen to you all because of the level of composition. Like it makes sense that they were hip to you before yeah. other. They're a gateway. They're a gateway drug for their fan base to, oh, to jazz and metal and. Sure, I mean, I don't know that. I don't know that their fans enjoy us. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to make that assumption. But they do. Oh, cool, great. Yeah, I think, I would say maybe, their fans are more predisposed to being into what we're doing, you know, than a lot of bands in the jam band scene, just because, they're, tuned in. Those fans are tuned into kind of tight arrangements and compositions. And how was it collaborating with them? Oh, they're like the nicest dudes on earth. I mean, they're like... They're music fans. They're music lovers. They're good people. I, I love hanging with them. Are you guys Sturgill Simpson fans? Because you did a Sturgill Simpson song, right? The Call to Arms? Um, Isn't that Sturgill? I don't know. I, I did not. I think maybe our horn section sat in with them doing it. Um... But I, I wasn't a part of that. I'm actually not... So, I, that's a name that has come up like three times this week, and I'm just not hip. I feel... I'm embarrassed. <clears throat> I'm just getting into him. He, he's, he's quite good. He's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful lyricist. Go ahead. No, no, say, we're, we're running out of time because uh, you've got to get to sound check, and we're aware of that. Uh, do you want to jump in a couple... couple? Well, let's talk about Kevin and talk about the first gig in Atlanta. And I thought it was really cool. Kevin that, Scott. Yeah, Kevin Scott. The gentleman who introduced you uh, is a, um, he's a local. I should Jamal Ahmed. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm like to put him in the Relics Review because um guy who was standing next to me is a big fan of his. What a nice introduction. And he mentioned your first gig at the five spot, which is now called Aisle Five. I, right. I, I saw you at the five spot. I don't think I saw that one, though. Talk about that. Talk about Atlanta. And then maybe you... you you t- tell your set list to where you are. What were some of the things that last night or tonight that you did or will do that are specifically for Atlanta? Um, Kevin is a great bass player. Kevin Scott, a wonderful bass player from Atlanta. He was the guy that kind of made our inroad here. He allowed us to play at his weekly jam session. He just kind of gave us the night. Um, and because we were based in Denton and we were only doing East Coast and Southeast runs, Atlanta was a very important place for us you know because it's right on the route um so it was it was a very big moment for us that we had a place to play in atlanta um atlanta is a funky city it's a soulful city it's a very black city and our music being american music you know basically like i mean 
basically all of our musical influences from this country are black American musical influences, you know? And having musicians like Sean Martin and Bobby Sparks and, you know, JT and all these guys in the band who are pillars in the black music community, like, there's that side of Snarky Puppy that can't really come out when we play in... Topeka. Topeka. (laughs) You know what I mean? So... When we are in a city like D.C. or in Atlanta or, Atlanta or, you know, Houston or something like that, where you, you feel like that side of our music can really be um, appreciated and, and that, that we can give the audience some food when we show that side to them, we tend to go that way. Last night we might have gone too much that way. I felt like at a certain point maybe we were like beating it to death. But at the very end maybe? Maybe earlier, maybe at the end. Yeah, I don't know. I no, mean, I don't think so. Either. Just like, but it's fun. Sometimes it's fun to have those nights. Mm-hmm. Like I try to create a like a you know I keep talking about a well balanced meal, but I try to create a balanced diet for the audience on any given night, knowing that they'll probably only see us that night and never again. You know, um, but some nights you have to look out for the band and just be like, the band wants to go there, so let's just go there. You know, last night the band wanted to 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 play funky shit so it was like alright we're just gonna play funky shit you know so alright let's talk about the Grammys cause <clears throat> you just won your third probably the most satisfying it's a purely snarky Grammy right that's right um, and a lot of artists win a Grammy it seems to elevate the artist but with you or Bela Fleck or you know Cecile McLaurin Salvant or the infamous String Dusters yeah, who've been on our show Dusters. yeah I feel it elevates the Grammys cause these are real oh, well. real musicians well, who put in their time who are getting rewarded? Go ahead. No, no. So it's, it's the day after the Grammys. The, you look at Facebook or social media. People are saying how awful the Grammys are because of uh, you know Bruno Mars or whatever you know, or that the decisions can be based on celebrity or record sales or political agendas or other douchey crap, which know? they are. And then on the Largely, flip side, yeah. then these these musicians such as yourself and the String Dusters are getting recognized, and a lot of people are, don't maybe never heard of you all or them, and now are, and it's like, and it's this weird thing. So one minute your people are saying fuck the Grammys the other minute they're like oh they're Grammys Uh, but my question (laughs) is there a negative side to it because I did a lot of research and I did notice some negative press and it it, the only negative press was kind of right after the first Grammy so is there are there writers out there with an axe to grind against the Grammys and they kind of use Grammy Award winners to grind that axe was that article called Snarky Puppy are a waste of your time that was yeah Was in Texas or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seemed like he was angry with the Grammys more than with you. Uh, that was the underlying thing I got. I think they sent the wrong guy to the gig. I, listen, I, I'm more aware of what sucks about Snarky Puppy than anyone in the world. <laughs> I, I am like the number one critic of of our band because it, that sh- I should be. I'm the musical director. I'm the band leader. You know, I should be aware of what's working and what's not working. But they just sent a guy that was like. This this newspaper called the Dallas Observer is kind of a rag a little bit in 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 Dallas. It has kind of a mixed reputation, and they sent a guy who I I I because I mean first off the headline of the article is improper grammar, which doesn't <laughs> invalidate his point. But Snarky Puppy right. is a singular noun, right? So it should be Snarky Puppy is a waste of your time. Right. You know, by the second you know, the third word in the headline, <laughs> I've already like lost some degree of respect for the guy, and then. Uh, but but then I like kind of you know the 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 review seemed to be more like it wasn't really a concert review it was kind of more like invalidating our existence so I was like okay who is this guy so I researched him and he wrote 
you know, another review that he said was the best concert of his life, and it was Major Lazer. So I was like, okay, well, you don't really send a guy... I'm not saying Major Lazer's good or bad. I'm just saying you don't send the guy whose favorite band is Major Lazer right. to do a review of a 10-piece instrumental jazz-based ensemble. Like, you, you just don't... Like, don't send me oh. to review a South Indian classical concert. I love South Indian classical music, but I'm not... That's not my shit. No, the, 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 the uh, vegan that goes to review the um, new Butcher? Exactly. <laughs> So right, they're, because they're not even going to taste it, you know. Uh, we we recently had the opportunity to uh, chat with Jeff Coffin, who sends his regards, by the way. And Jeff brought an interesting point to the table, and I just want to briefly talk about this. Um, your a lot of your younger fans, if you said Ornette Coleman, or they more so, you played Ornette Coleman from there, they might actually go and say Snarky Puppy before Ornette Coleman as a reference point to jazz. And we, we, we're, we're very fascinated by this, and, and we probably could talk for hours about it. But, you know, time has flown by, and I remember being in high school um, and, when, you know, being attached to Miles Davis and all the greats, you know. And here, this new millennials and, and this new generation coming up, they're associating jazz with you all. And I was curious about what that means to you and how you feel about that that's that is an hour long topic i mean i don't look at snarky puppy as a jazz band you know i don't want to take any responsibility for carrying the jazz torch or being the new thing in jazz or I, yes snarky puppy has jazz musicians in it i would say every musician on the stage to some extent is a jazz musician um yes our music is jazz based probably we take more influence from jazz than any other genre. Maybe even you could argue that what we do is more in the jazz tradition than straight-ahead acoustic jazz trios right now in the way that it's kind of aggregating the history of jazz music and using it to, to do something relatively new, you know? Um, I would say that that's actually more in the jazz tradition than doing like a trio playing blueses or something, swing blueses, you know? That said, we've never claimed to be a jazz band. There are certain rules. Rules with jazz? <laughs> I mean, not rules, but there's certain things that are idiomatic of the genre uh. that we don't do. You know? And so when people, you know, rag on us or something... Someone will say, oh, this is the new face of jazz, Snarky Puppy. And then someone else will be like, no, they're not. They're poser, blah, blah, blah. They play the same groove for six minutes, blah, blah, blah. You know? And it's like, wait a minute. We never said that, you know? Like, and, and Nate Chin for the New York Times had a really interesting comment. There was a thread by a jazz publicist who was like, I always discounted Snarky Puppy as just some kind of like jammy BS or something. Well, we're glad to know you're not on heroin. No, not definitely not. Not part of that's definitely not part of our jazz tradition. Um, and uh, there was this thread, this kind of really interesting thread of certain people defending us and certain people kind of like trying to invalidate us. And then Nate from the New York Times chimed in and said, "You know, it's interesting reading all these comments, but it's I think it's better to judge Snarky Puppy on what they are rather than what they're not." Yeah. You know, because people are making a lot of assumptions about what the band is and what we're supposed to represent, but we've never claimed to represent anything. You know, we're really just playing shit that we want to play. Like, you know, we play jazz festivals. Yes, we play jam band festivals. We play you play, play concert hall. You we play, play Carnegie these hall. International you know? festivals. I mean, I was in right. I was on my honeymoon in Indonesia, and you guys were playing in um, 
Java Jazz. Yeah, Java Jazz, exactly. Well, Jamie's back, which means we should wrap this up. So let's end on this. <clears throat> there's, um, there's a David Crosby quote where he says, they're funky and they swing and they affect you emotionally. It's not an intellectual exercise for them. And I think that that might go back to Bernard Wright. Is that something you learned from him? And can you talk about who Bernard Wright is and how he was an influence on you? And why doesn't he do music anymore? I, don't, I, I look, tried to look for recent stuff from him. And does he just mentor people now? Mentor? I want to thank you for mentioning Bernard Wright because I, I because he is the most important figure in Snarky Puppy. And does that quote relate to things you learned from him? Bernard in- is the foundation on which everything that I do as a musician is built, I would say. And definitely the band because he has had individual influence on 80% of the guys in the band. I've spent time one-on-one with him. And he doesn't, like, mentor you in this kind of academic way. I mean, it's interesting, the way that he does it. Um, he's a complex person, you know? I mean, he's his life has been tumultuous. He's struggled with various things, um, which is why, we, why you don't hear much from him. Okay. Um, he stays in Dallas and plays... I heard a rumor that he actually moved to Phoenix. I'm not sure. But, you know, for years, for decades, he was just kind of like in Dallas, just playing around town gigs. But his playing and his philosophy and his concept are so compelling that you just get like, he's like a, like, you just get drawn into his orbit when you hear him. He's like Yoda for... Everyone from Dallas, every keyboard player. Talk to Sean Martin, talk to Bobby Sparks, you know, talk to Xavier Jackson, like, you know, everybody, Erskine Hawkins, everyone has been under him. Get you to a multi, Will, yes? Get you to a multi. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's, he's, he's the guy. And so we're, we're very, like, I'm grateful for what he's done for us. And he played on, on, on one of our records, and, you know, but he... All I can say is everybody just needs to check out his shit. Go check out the record Nard that he made when he was 15, N-A-R-D, um, with Dennis Chambers and Marcus Miller and Buster oh. Williams and Roy Haynes. And, Whoa. You know, I mean, it's... And check out the stuff he did with Marcus Miller. There's videos you can find online, you know. I mean... It's like R&B jazz, kind of. He grew up in Jamaica, Queens, in New York, and that group of people, the Jamaica Boys, you know, they had records out... They had to be able to funk, and they had to be able to swing. If you couldn't do those two things, you didn't have work. But when I, when I say swing, I mean, I mean, Nard was playing with Max Roach and Ronnie Cuber when he was like eight. Wow. Smoking weed and, you know what I mean? Like, he was like the little freak, you know? Check out this little freak play, you know? And, he, and it was like, you know, it was like that. But then also... You know, he's playing with Roberta Flack and, you know, the Winans playing key bass, touring, just playing key bass with the Winans, you know. I mean, just like really deep. And that is the ethos, I think, of Snarky Puppy is that, is that like, you got to be able to swing. You got to know the jazz vocabulary. You got to be able to groove. You got to be happy serving the groove. You have to, you have to be happy as a servant in general, musically. Like, be generous, be open, be accepting of everything, you know. And then, in addition, like, play things that are simple and that attract people and that make them move. 
but without compromising the depth or the musicality of it. That's Bernard. And that's a tricky thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's beautiful. I mean, the best music is like that, you know. Well, thank you so much for your time. And um, I mean, you're young, so I can only imagine where you're, what your impact you're going to have on the world of music. So thanks for everything you're doing. And while Jamie's here, I want to say she represents you really well. She's very responsive. Even in the midst of your festival, she was helping us out. There are, there are, Michael, there are pips and there are pops. I've been learning. Podcast ignorant publicists and podcast aware publicists. There's a lot of big name publicists who are pips out there. And we're about to go on a big platform, and they're, they're going to hear from me. But she is very much a pop, and she we really appreciate it. So thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, right. guys. actually shared a mic on that one yeah it actually toned down on the interruptions it worked it worked in our favor i think it did don't you think no i was i was trying not to interrupt you oh that's a pleasant change no he's that, a he's a fascinating guy and the, the whole a what a fascinating a, guy <laughs> i was so fascinated uh i was pacified like i was pacified and fascinated i thought it was like passion and fascination i really liked the, the writing process with david crosby the way like David just sat there and regurgitated words, and then you, he sent him off to take a nap, and then... A nap. Are, are you talking about David Crosby? I thought that uh, you're not allowed to talk about him. Well, it depends. On, there's one Twitter account that's uh, that's blocked. But yeah, I, still, no, we, I still monitor him and, and ask very sporadic questions. I think I've asked once since the whole incident. You're not using Inside one, Out to talk to him now, are you? I don't know. Oh, no. no don't worry. <laughs> Come on. I won't mention any hippie... What was it again? Uh, they can listen to our last episode. Hippie behavior at Isle of Wight. Well, Just pushed him over the edge. Oh, my God. Hey, speaking of hippie behavior, I had a good time over the weekend. Candler Park Music Festival. Thank you, music guys. Music food here in Atlanta, Georgia. Sadly, uh, we lost the Larkin Post set, our future guests on this show, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I like, I'm, I'm really like to see them. But, uh, but yeah, no, the, what a great festival for a lot. It's like family-oriented, just a... 
just a really really good city yeah, festival. Yeah, there were a lot of kids. A lot of kids. But also you know, a lot of a lot of people in their 30s and 40s like the thing is it's one it's a perfect size festival, you know, it's really a sustainable festival. That's I think were you saying that? Uh I I agree with it. I don't know if I was quote saying it, but I want to I want to compliment Lettuce because a lot of bands get in that spot. They headline Friday and they feel tempted to do a big cover, a big like everybody knows song and they eschewed that they just played their own stuff and they even improvised and took it off the structure a little bit i thought i was really knocked out by the lettuce set i thought that was wonderful it was a good set you know keep in mind though the lettuce set uh the next night they played um spirit of the swanee for the purple hatters ball and then yeah. they're taking i think they maybe had one more no no then they have the week off and they're playing red rock so in didn't a way they do, didn't they, they do a hybrid thing down there too with the biscuits some kind of lettuce bis- biscuits hybrid maybe i don't think so though i think that was some lettuce something else. down in Hawa- down in swanee but uh the point is is that next you know that they Definitely, we're working out some of the stuff for for their Red Rocks. So I imagine Red Rocks gonna be pretty big. And then down the road, that that JGB thing they're doing at uh, Lockin. And of course, the yes. Blue Note. Yes. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, all right. Here, poke that in. We got to talk about Clarence Fountain, uh, Blind Boys of Alabama, booked out of uh, managed out of Decatur, Georgia. Here. Um, Clarence Fountain passed away. He was the last original, last founding member. He died in Baton Rouge at age of 88. Very, very sad news. They started out as the Happy Land Jubilee Singers about 75 years ago, Seth. Well, I was listening to NPR's coverage of, uh, of, of him today, and I, I learned a lot. I didn't know about it. They really, gospel music wasn't really in mainstream music before them. They really were one of the, the leading bands in pulling gospel into the mainstream. There's some quote about like the ma- James Brown doesn't mash potato with rock and roll, but I'm going to do the mashed potato with gospel music or something like that. <laughs> do you hear that? I don't know. But it was an it interesting thought. Well, very, very sad loss. And um, in fact, Fountain was present. For the signing of a contract that would make Sam Cooke one of the most popular singers of the century after Cooke decided to transition away from gospel. When the man gave him a contract, he gave me one too. He offered me one. I just didn't take it, Fountain told Oxford American in 2010. I thought it was a thing that he shouldn't have done. But listen, you can't control people, you know. They have a mind of their own. And I think that the Lord gave me a few more years just for that particular thing that I did. I ain't saying it's true, but I'm here and he's gone. I, I got to tell you, whether or not, I mean, it's not a religious thing, but you got you to gotta give the guy credit for sticking to his guns, you know? He did music because he had a reason for it, and it wasn't money. And he wasn't about to just sign a contract, and, and not to say that anyone who did is a bad person, but I just, it, it, Clarence should be honored for that. He definitely um, chose his own path. You know, I got to hang out with him once in East Atlanta. Well, yeah, why are we on a squeaky table then? Just you can keep talking. You don't have to tell the listeners. Oh, well, you keep going. <laughs> you keep it's going. driving me nuts. <laughs> You're driving me nuts. <laughs> but yeah, at some somehow I ended. I think because Jason Crosby was in town, I ended up at some house party with them near East Atlanta, and I got to chat, chat with him a little bit. Very very kind kind man. He will be missed. Wanted to stick that in there. Any any recent shows you've seen, Seth? A lot actually. Uh, well, minus Candler Park. Um, no. Chastain is about to reopen, and I'm going to be going. It's um, it's not open. What do you mean reopen? It, they've done pulled some construction. They had to push some shows away. Uh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, but it's going to be Fogarty's Easy Top. I'm going to that. Dead and Company are coming. We're working. Oh yeah, we're doing it for Positive Legacy. We'll yes. be on a participation row with Headcount and. Uh, I'm looking Reaver, forward to that. I really yeah. believe in Positive Legacy and what they're doing. I'm I'm excited and honored to be uh, representing them. 
Well, Rob, welcome aboard. Thank you. What else have I seen lately? I feel like a big something you know, Voodoo Visionary show went really well. Voodoo did all originals for their opening set, and then big something just threw down a massive two-set show. Wonderful, wonderful double bill that hopefully we'll see more of in the future. Yeah, we've got a lot of stuff in the can that we're going to start pushing out. Uh, hey, if you're... Um, oh, Government Mule was great at, um, at Candle Park. We didn't mention that. Did a nice, chunky... Mentioned Tupelo Honey in the middle of Soul Shine. Mentioned who came out and played with them, though. Rob. Benji Shanks came out with him and Tommy Talton, right? Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. Really. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but when they played, I could have swore that they teased a little outcast in that. I don't know. It was, that was the Allman Brothers song. Oh, that was the one thing Lettuce did cover, right? Speaking of outcast, at one point, Lettuce did go into an outcast song. I don't think they did a full-blown They did the Atlanta, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, they did like a jam, like culminated in it. But I don't think it was a full-blown cover, right? No, I think it was just a jam. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. It's going to be an interesting summer. I'm not sure what's going to happen here. Uh, with our time and how we're going to do it. Maybe Rob joins me on the road. Maybe not. Maybe Rob just does some interviews here and I do some there. I don't really know what's going to happen, but I tell you what, Inside Out is not going anywhere. We're here. We're going to be here for a long time, even if it's two shows a month. But hey, if you want it to be more, you can donate. I don't know where. Just uh, email us and I'll tell you where. (laughs) Donate here. Or sponsor. We're looking for sponsorships, particularly like convenience stores, hotel chains. Come on. Come on. Get on the train. Join us. Yes. And hey, Rob, good job picking out the music on this episode. I've enjoyed listening to it. And you've been enjoying listening to some stuff too lately, haven't you? Yes. But you want, you know, we did a playlist for the Jesus one. I think one thing to point out is when we do the playlist for these, um, there'll be re- oftentimes, like this will be an example of an episode where, where I'll, I'll be putting together some of the release versions of some of the songs that are on here because the we have the live show from Atlanta. Uh-huh. The second night is where I'll be pulling from. The second night of Atlanta last fall, if you want the exact date, we'll tweet it or whatever it will be so, in in our show notes rob's going to start in in making those notes as to what the song is and if when it's from so you right. get a link but to oftentimes it. we don't have it on spotify so right. the spotify our, version will yeah. be different from the version that you hear on the show uh, i see what you're saying but rob you are going to be doing that in the notes for our listeners yes sure sure just got to get into it start doing it and then get, get in the get habit of it. it get in hey we want to know and seth seth needs to land us more sponsors and more live gigs come on one in the last nine months come on Get us a live gig. Let's go. I've got a lot going on in my life right now, Rob. There you go. Oh, jeez, Edith. (laughs) You dang bat. I will not drive my car into that tree. No, thank you if you're worried about that. (laughs) Or a golf cart. No (laughs) golf carts into trees or tents or whatever. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't you break my car. All right, we're going on too long. Yeah, so here's a little bit more snarky puppy. Again, this is you can you can buy this from from the band. We will tweet it out and social media it out how you buy their shows. And this is from last fall, the second night of the Atlanta shows at the Variety Playhouse, the one I reviewed in Relics Magazine.
Thank you so much, Atlanta. How you doing? I'm pretty good.